Good morning, good morning. It is good to be here with you in the house of the Lord. Uh, we are in the book of John, the book of John chapter 14 today. We're actually going to start a little bit before chapter 14 to give a little tiny bit of context to what's going on. Uh, but we've been here in the book of John for a while and it's been a great, great time. And now uh, we are on the direct path uh, towards Calvary. We are marching on towards uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection, uh, and Jesus is taking some time now to comfort his disciples. Um, and so uh, last week uh, we talked about chapter 13, which was the uh, foot washing of the disciples where Christ uh, showed his love to the disciples, showed them how they should show love to one another. And now uh, we are coming to chapter 14, uh, which is going to lead us into some more discussion with the disciples uh, leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. Let's go ahead and let's start in verse 36, which is actually right where we ended last week. We ended in verse 35 with the new command, but now we are in verse 36, and we're going to read the first couple of, or these last two verses of the chapter uh, to give us this bridge in between 13 and 14. Simon said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you. The rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. This section is familiar to us. We have heard of Jesus foretelling of Peter's denial. But I wanted to point out a couple of important facts about what is happening in here. Jesus has told the disciples that the Son of Man must be glorified and God glorified in him. He's told them that, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so I now also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Peter is confused by this. What do you mean we can't follow you? I'll follow you anywhere, Lord. I'm going to go with you even unto death. Peter is like the other disciples, and Unfortunately, I think Peter is just the first one to always say something. He's the first one to come out with it. Everybody's thinking it. Peter just doesn't have that filter involved in him. Like, I don't know about some of you, but you might have a lot of questions about something, but there's like this filter that just like stops you to go, maybe there's something I don't know. I don't really want people to look at me too much. Peter just like doesn't have that. He just kind of comes out with what he's thinking. And Peter is confused. He probably was speaking what others were probably thinking. What do you mean we can't go where you're going? We've been following you around for three years. We're going to go everywhere you go. One of the things about disciples that you have to understand when it comes to first century disciples, this is even true of disciples of rabbis today, following the rabbi, following the teacher was incredibly important. You wanted to go everywhere and do everything that your rabbi did. Because you were thinking that there is probably something I can glean from this guy, even when he's, you know, washing his hands. It's actually something that's very interesting. There's a story I heard about 
uh, a rabbi uh, who went to a airport and he had several of his disciples with him and they were they were perturbed because he needed to go use the bathroom and he shut them out. He was like, no, I'm using the bathroom. You can't follow me in here. And they were like, no, we might learn something if we follow you in there. You might do something that we didn't know about because this is a part where you're not going to be with us. And the same idea with Peter and the disciples. They want to follow Christ where he's going. But they didn't understand that Jesus wasn't saying, you can't just follow me. He's saying, you can't do what I'm about to do. Peter said, oh, oh, the Jews are mad at you, right? They're going to kill you. I'll, I'll die with you. No, no, no. You can't go to do what I'm about to do. Because I am the, the Lamb of God who is going to take away the sin of the world. But notice he says, you can't follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. You see, there's two things here. You can't, meaning literally you cannot do what I'm about to do. You can't be a sin sacrifice for the world. You are a sinner. I am sinless. I am going to be the one that is sacrificed for the sin. You can't do that. But also, you can't actually follow me. I know what's in your heart, Peter. I know you love me. But I also know that that love is born out of emotion and not sure knowledge. It's not a conviction based on truth yet. When the opportunity comes, and he tells him this, you will deny me. When it is put up or shut up time, you will shut up. And I know that about you, and I still love you, and one day, one day you will be convicted in truth. One day you will be confronted with denying me or being killed, and you will go to your death. One day that will happen, but it's not this day. It's not now. You still have much to learn and much to do. There's no doubt that Peter loves the Lord. But his love, his, his love for the Lord has not given him any more insight into who Christ really is, even though he's given the confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He knows that. Remember what Jesus says, man has not revealed that to you. That's been revealed to you by God. His love is not going to give him any more insight or any more understanding of what's going on. His emotions are good. It's good to love the Lord. That is good. But his emotions should not be given the place of leading his action. What you will see when you put your emotions in the driver's seat is you will see they will take you places you don't want to go in your mind. What happens with Peter is he allows his emotion to take the driver's seat he allows his emotion to take over him, and at a certain point, his emotion was scared, fearful, and his emotion drove him away to denying the Lord. Your emotions are good, but they need to be in their proper place. There's a certain kind of self-assured mindset built on emotion that is actually the seed of denial. It is actually the thing that tips you off that you might be headed towards disaster. And so we need to be careful with our emotions because our emotions are not always truth tellers. But there is one who is the truth. There is one on whom we can rely. 
And that's where we come to John 14. John 14, 1. We're going to read verses. Uh, we're actually, I think we're going to do 1 through 4. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you so? That I go to, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Christ is in this moment in his life where he knows that the cross is before him. He knows the pain and agony that he will be going through very shortly. This is not something that is catching him off guard. God has sovereignly planned for this all to happen. And in this moment, you would think that the disciples ought to be comforting Jesus. They ought to be ministering to him and saying, Lord, we are here for you. Lord, we love you. Let us minister to you. But Jesus, even as he approaches the cross, comforts his disciples who are confused and dismayed. The best antidote for a troubled heart is a firm faith. Trouble in this life is expected. You will find trouble, Jesus is going to say later on. You will find trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Trouble is expected, but the peace of our faith in Christ provides us with a sure peace. That peace should also be expected. Yes, we shall expect difficulty and trial. Yes, we shall expect turmoil in our lives. But we should also expect when we follow Christ and we trust in him that he will grant us peace and that he will grant us comfort even in the midst of that dismay. You see, he says, believe in God, believe also in me. This is, not, this is not something where he's like, maybe if you believe in God, then you should also believe in me. No, he's saying as an imperative, a command, believe in God, believe in me. This is Christ's command to us in the midst of our troubled hearts. Believe in God. Another word for believe is to trust in God. Trust in in Christ. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Christ is telling his followers, his disciples, that he is going to prepare a place in his father's house. You know, when, when parents are expecting a new child, what is one of the things that they love to do, they're excited to do? Prepare the room for the new baby. 
And it is some, it's a labor of love. They love to do it. They go in and they pick out the right colors for everything. They get the crib. They get the toys. They get the diaper changing table because they're practical. And they get all of the things that they need. And they put it in that room. And it is a joy to them. Preparation is a joy. It's an act of love. When someone is coming over to your house and you're about to have house guests, you know, some of us, we, we think of that less as a joy. But we prepare because we love the people that are coming over to our house. If you're preparing your house, by the way, because you want to impress them, just don't. You're not going to impress them. Prepare because you love them and you want to give them a comfortable place to be. The Lord is loving his disciples by preparing a place for them. This was all part of the plan. He says, I go, not I'm being taken. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. The I go tells us that Christ is not doing anything he is unwilling to do or that his father has not already sovereignly planned. In fact, when the disciples, after the resurrection, begin to preach, this becomes a part of their preaching, that this was not something that shocked the Lord. Acts 4.28 says, when they are talking about what God has done through Pilate and through the Jews, what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. That's how the disciples talk about what happened in the crucifixion. This was not merely the plan of evil men. This was God's sovereign plan that evil men played into. The going that Jesus is talking about, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. The going itself is the cross and the resurrection. The going is how the Lord prepares our place. The cross and the resurrection are the way in which he prepares our place in his Father's house. He is not going to go here first, have a little stopover, do this cross thing, and this resurrection thing, and then go to heaven, and then he's going to be preparing a place. No, the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection, they are the preparation. This is him preparing a place. This is him providing a way for us to come to God. There's also, he says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. This, this is a slight allusion to the second coming of Christ. This is not just the resurrection, but this is also saying, if I am going to do this, I will return to take you to myself. But usually when we hear about the second coming of Christ, there's more of a, like an end times feel. You know, when we talk about end times, we're usually talking about things that are a little bit more on the scary side, right? This is the end of the world. This is a frightening day of the Lord. And there is definitely... Uh, those things need to be addressed, but Jesus is addressing here what the comfort of him returning will be. This is why we say, come Lord Jesus. 
you know, when the world hears us say that, they, they think that we're part of like some sort of doomsday cult, that we just cannot wait for the world to end and be over and be destroyed. No, we want to be with our Lord. We want to find the comfort that is found in seeing him face to face and knowing him and loving him. And this is where Jesus is focused. His focus is on the comfort that he is providing to his followers. But now we come to one of the most famous sections and probably what we would think of as one of the most confrontational sections of John. And you'll see what I mean in a second. Let me go ahead and read 14 verses 5 through 6. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. For many of us, we would really want really, really want this to be a statement by Jesus that is just kind of like thumbing his nose at the world. There is no way to the Father except through me. But do not take this verse out of the context of chapter 14. This is not a confrontation verse. This is a verse of comfort. This is a verse of comfort to you and to me. Christ is the only way to the Father. Christ is the way. You know, Christians, uh, when they first began preaching, they, be, they were called followers of the way. The idea of the way is not something that is unfamiliar to the Old Testament. In Isaiah 35, verse 8, we read about the way of righteousness, the way of holiness. Isaiah 538, uh, show that on the screen real quick. 35.8, sorry. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It belongs to those, it shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they shall not go astray. Remember in John chapter 1, which sets up the whole rest of the book, gives us the prologue, tells us all of the main themes says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The access to God, our only avenue, the way of holiness that we have is not a set of rules that we adhere to, but it is a person. It is Jesus Christ. And even if we're fools, we will not go astray if we stay with him. Because through him, we are given the right to become children of God. We have access to the Father. It is because he is the truth of God and the life of God that he is the only way to God. No religious endeavor, no man-made accomplishment, no depth of cosmic knowledge could ever bridge the gap that exists between man and God. Your sin has separated you. And there is nothing that is in you that can bridge that gap. You need someone to take you to God. 
And there is only one way. Not a myriad of ways that you get to choose. Not one way amongst many. This is what our culture likes to talk about. We, we love all of the different ways because there's a flavor for everybody. If you like this, you could kind of go over here. If you like this, you could go over there. If you, it's really based on you because you are really obviously the most important person in this whole equation, right? Like, who's really important here? Is it God or is it you? Obviously me. I'm the main character. I mean, I hear the music in my head when I'm going about my day. The background music, it follows me around. I'm the main character of this story. I know everything that I do. I know all the things that I'm going about, and I know what's in my head. I narrate my own story. I am important. Therefore, whatever way I choose must be the right way. I, 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 me, me, me. No. You are important, but you're not that important. Just going to let you know real quick. Love you but you're not that important. There is only one way. And we submit to him. There is nothing that we could do, no right that we could participate in. You participated in communion earlier, and this is a beautiful thing. We, we saw a baptism last week, and that is a beautiful thing. But these things are all pointers. They are not the way in himself. They point to the way. They are signposts to the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, when Jesus says that he is the truth, this means that he is the ultimate revelation of who the Father is. When we use the word truth, what we're talking about is that which corresponds to reality. That's typically what we mean when we say truth, that which corresponds to reality. This is why things like my truth or your truth they're not very useful when we're talking about objective things. There are many subjective truths. I like this kind of ice cream. You like this show. But when someone says, this is obviously the best ice cream, you're making an objective statement that needs to be true whether or not you believe it or not. And many people, when they, when they make these claims about their truth, it is because they feel uncomfortable making a claim about the objective reality of things because they understand, I think, innately that it is difficult to say that your opinion is the truth. They recognize that innately, so they retreat into, well, this is just my truth. I am very sympathetic towards that because there are certain things that are good and important to know about individuals and about who they are and their likes and their dislikes and what has happened to them. But we need to be concerned primarily with the truth, that which corresponds to reality. And Christ is the ultimate truth. He is the ultimate revelation of who the Father is. We know who God is because Christ reveals him 
more than any other revelation given to men. He is the truth. Later on, you're actually going to see this pop up again when Jesus is talking to Pilate. And Pilate will ask the question, what is truth? And just leave it. And there's no answer in the, in the text, but the reader is to understand he was talking to the truth. He was talking to the one who revealed all truth, and he missed it. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. These three words, they're not subordinate to one another. They're not, they all are important in and of themselves. And they are uh, expressions of who Christ is. These I am statements that we've been talking through with John, they each reveal more of who Christ is. And when we get to this I am the life, you know, there's a, it's very easy to just say what I'm going to say, which is he is the source of all life. He is the creator. We, we read in Genesis that God made everything in the six days of creation. And we read in Genesis 2-7 that the Lord God formed the man of, the, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And we, we recognize that this is important. But do we truly understand? You know, our creative prowess, when we try to compare it to what God is as creator, is just a mere shadow. It's a mere shadow of what God does. One of the most scary creations that people have come up with is AI technology. That stuff is kind of creepy. I went on to chat GPT. Have you ever heard of that? And it's, it's creepy. Uh, I, I asked it to write me an episode of The Chosen. I don't know if you've ever seen The Chosen. It's about Jesus. And I just said, write an episode about The Chosen with a time-traveling phone book salesman. And it did. And it was funny. And I was like, how? You're a computer. How? how? I'm, I don't like this. Uh, it makes you feel a little uneasy. Now they're even doing AI voices. I don't know if you've heard that. But that's, that's kind of creepy. Um, they're not perfect yet, obviously. These are all still kind of in their infancy, but kind of creepy technology. But here's the thing. We get scared of our creations. In a certain sense, we are like God in that we are creative. We can create things, but God is never scared of us. There's nothing that scares God about us. See, we can create things, and, and we can... We can imitate what God does, but we are never like him. How important it is to know that God formed from the dust a person, a man, and breathed life into his nostrils. This is not like anything that you or I could ever do. And in John 1, it says, all things were made through him, talking about the word, Christ himself. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. God not 
only fashioned things, but is the very fount from which all life comes from. And that life was in Christ and comes from Christ. So when he says he is the way, he is the avenue that we go to God, he is the truth, he is the one that corresponds to reality, that reveals the Father, the best revelation, the ultimate revelation, he is the life outside of him. There is no life, there is nothing. For, for us to say this into our context, yes, is confrontational because we live in a pluralistic world. So this statement that Christ alone, uh, the Latin word is solus Christus. This is a bold contrast to the pluralism of our modern society. But it is first and foremost our comfort in this troubling world. You may say, how? How can only having one, one way to the Father be comforting? I'll tell you why. Because it means that we get to rely and trust on only one. And we don't have to... Have you ever been to a restaurant where there are a million choices? And you go through the menu and you go, oh man, I don't know what to choose. Which one? And you, you eventually you just go up to the to the uh, uh, the waiter or waitress, and you're like, "What? What's the best here? What? What? What's what's the good thing here?" Because it's too many choices. There's actually uh, psychological research done on that that people who uh, are given too many choices it actually usually makes them freeze up. God, God doesn't give us a million choices and say, "Ah, just kind of fit in with what you want." God says, "No, this is the way." This is the one way to me. And this provides us with comfort and ease and understanding. We don't have to know everything. We just have to know one. We have to know him. This declaration of exclusivity was not something that was just made up because of the pluralistic society. But take a look at what Acts 4.12 and 1 Timothy 2.5 say. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This was actually a play on a Roman, uh, a Roman uh, phrase that was usually said when Romans took over an area. There's no other name under heaven given by men by which they are saved except for that of Julius Caesar. And the Christians were like, wrong. <laughs> nope. Caesar is a terrible savior. Awful savior. Jesus is a great savior. 1 Timothy 2.5 There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. You don't need me to have access to God. You don't need a pope you don't need Mary. You don't need saints. You don't need any rite or ritual. You don't need anything like that. All you need is Christ and him alone. Solus Christus. Christ alone. 
is our salvation. Let's end this section, uh, verses 7 through 11. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you, not, uh, do you not believe that I am the Father? I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. It is very tempting to look at Philip, to look at Peter, to look at Thomas, and be like, what silly guys. Peter, saying that he would follow Jesus to death. What a, what a silly dude. Thomas, just not understanding. What, what do you mean the way? We don't know where you're going. Silly Thomas. Silly Philip, how could he not realize what Jesus has been saying to him the whole time? My friends, this is us. This is us. This is how we would react, and this is how we react sometimes. We just don't get the plain things that the Lord is saying to us. If you know me, you know him. That's what Jesus is saying. If you know Christ, you know the Father. Christ is the ultimate revelation to the Father. He is the way to the Father. He is the life of the Father. And so, he says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe on the count of the works themselves. You know, Jesus had done so much at this point. He's like, listen, if you're not believing the words, just look at what God has been doing. But I want you to know, and I want you to walk away today with an understanding and a comfort of knowing that if your life is troubled right now, or if you are in a midst of not understanding what is going on, and I, believe me, there is so much in life that it can throw at you that uh, I, I would be in awe if there was no one here whose heart wasn't troubled by something, whose heart wasn't troubled by any of the things that are going on in your life. But if you are troubled, believe in God. Believe also in Christ. Trust in him. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is our only salvation, our only and exclusive Savior. And in trusting in him, we will find our true peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for your words of comfort to the disciples that echo to us down the ages, have been preserved for us in your holy word, that they might come to us today when we need to hear them. Lord, there is so much noise in our culture, so much stuff 
that is going on. And so many different, quote-unquote, saviors calling out to us, asking us to follow them, to go after them, to worship them. So many so-called gods who only take, devour, destroy. But there is one. One Savior who calls out to us, who commands us to follow, who beckons us come, who shows us what life truly is, what truth really is, and the way to live, the way, the truth, and the life, the one man, Jesus Christ. May we all run to him. May we follow after him, and may we find our salvation in him alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.